don't raise my hopes. I'm going now to Romans chapter 5, five verses there. Paul wrote to the Romans. He said, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also. What? We glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience and patience experience and experience hope. Pay special attention to verse 5. It says, And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. I want to talk to you for a little while this morning, Grace Church, about when hope hurts. Let's pray together before you're seated. Lord, I thank you so much for every heart that is represented here. And I thank you that we have the opportunity to come before you today to open your word and to allow you to work in us. Lord, I pray that you would help me today to deliver what you've given me in a way that they can receive it, in a way that's effective. Lord, in a way that gives them what they need, which is an encounter with you and not just the words of a man. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. You can be seated today. Now, I'm going to tell this story the way I remember it. But my mama is here today. She might have a different version of the story. But she don't have the microphone. So you're going to get it the way I remember it. The year was 1984. Ronald Reagan was president. Come on, somebody. Margaret Thatcher was the British prime minister. Indiana Jones, Gremlins, Ghostbusters, and the original Karate Kid were dominating the summer box office. The Summer Olympics were being held in Los Angeles. The space shuttle Discovery was making her maiden flight. Interest rates on a new home were a whopping 10.75%. The national average for a gallon of gasoline was a dollar and 10 cents. And some company named Apple had just debuted a commercial for what they were calling a personal home computer, something called an Apple Macintosh. I didn't care a whole lot about any of that, though. I, I, was, I was 11. And, and for another thing, and th this is what really had attracted my attention, my favorite Saturday cartoon character had just released a new toy. In the golden age of Saturday cartoons, there used to be a time whenever cartoons only came on on Saturday morning. But in the golden age of Saturday cartoons, I'm talking Voltron, Transformers, He-Man, and Thundercats. I loved me some G.I. Joe. Can I get a witness in the house? And G.I. Joe had a new weapon in his arsenal in the fight for freedom. It was the G.I. Joe hovercraft called the Killer Whale. And it was coming to a store near me. I want you to behold this morning, Grace Church, I want you to behold the Killer Whale in all of its Hasbro design glory. There it is. Circa 1984. This thing was sweet, y'all. It, it had a pilot named Cutter. It had a reconnaissance motorcycle and a submersible vehicle inside of it. And it still had room for four more of your favorite G.I. Joe action figures inside. This thing had more room than a Tahoe. 
It had depth charges. It had eight missiles and turrets on the side. It had two big cannons. It had two small machine guns. And it had engine blades that would actually turn if you pushed the little button at the back a whole lot with your finger. And here's the real life pick. Oh, yeah. There it is. The killer whale. I had to have it. Life would not be complete without the killer whale. How would Snake Eyes and Roadblock and Scarlet possibly hope to stop Cobra Commander and Storm Shadow without mounting a full frontal naval assault via the killer whale? That was good logic for an 11-year-old boy. But that logic was pretty much lost on my mother. She didn't get it. She did not understand how necessary, how vital the killer whale was to national security and the fate of the free world. She didn't know. And it didn't matter how many times I told her about it or how many times I drug her into the living room to see the commercial again. Every time I asked for it, Mama, Mama, please, please, I want the killer whale. I need the killer whale. G.I. Joe needs the killer whale. She would just nod and kind of mutter, uh-huh. That's nice. At Kmart, I would wait till she wasn't looking, and I would sneak off to the toy aisle and stare longingly at the killer whale, just imagining all of the adventures I could have with G.I. Joe. If only we had a way to get across the ocean to Cobra's secret hideout. Well, finally, I figured it out. I, I hit on a strategy because... I knew that Christmas was coming. And maybe, just maybe, Santa Claus would bring me a killer whale. So I told my mom, Mom, I know what I want for Christmas. I, I want the killer whale, like she didn't already know. Mom, do you do you think that maybe that Santa would bring me the killer whale for Christmas. Now that right there is what I'd call a mistake. That's a, a, a miscalculation on my part because it was like October and I was like all in on the killer whale like way too early. Kids, I'm trying to help you. Listen to Coop this morning. You got to be smart. Play the long game whenever it comes to this Christmas stuff. Don't show your hand too early. Because here's what happened. When Troy Ann saw how serious I was and, and how much I wanted the killer whale and how I just wouldn't shut up about the killer whale, and killer whale, killer whale, killer whale, and how Christmas was going to be a disaster without it, what she saw was an opportunity for some leverage. And she said... The worst thing that a mother could ever say to an 11-year-old boy. She said, she said, Jason, she pointed her finger, and that's how you knew she was serious. She wasn't playing to get that finger point. She said, Jason, maybe if you are really good, Santa might bring you that killer G.I. Joe whale thing toy for Christmas. And that was it. Because I knew the chances of me getting a killer whale from Santa were about the same as me getting the real-life flamethrower I'd asked for the previous Christmas. My chance, I had zero. I had zero chances. It was October, man. I was 11. I knew me. I was going to punch my kid sister. I was going to forget to burn the trash or burn the trash wrong. That's a different story. I was going to get in trouble in Miss Ballard's class again because she was terrible. And probably, honestly, all of those in like inside of a week, much less three months. Forget it, man. Be really good. I don't even know what that means. For that long, that's hopeless. That's hopeless. And I knew it. 
But you know what? Even though I knew it every time that commercial came on, I was right back there watching it. And every time G.I. Joe got in the killer whale on the Saturday cartoons, I was on the edge of my seat. And every time we made another trip to Kmart, I don't know why we went to Kmart so much, but it seems like we went a lot. I was back in the toy aisle, man, gazing longingly. I, I was dreaming, and I was, I was imagining, and I was planning. I was hoping, but knowing better. It doesn't matter how hard I try or how bad I want it or how many times I tell mom about it, the chances of me being really good enough in Santa's all-knowing eyes to qualify for something as awesome as the killer whale, it just, it wasn't going to happen. It wasn't going to happen. Now, the end of the story, Christmas morning, 1984, 5 a.m., even been before that, I get up. And there it is, in all of its Hasbro-boxed glory, the killer whale. It's, it's glorious, but not from Santa. Oh, no. The tag attached to the bow said, to Jason, like, who else in this household is going to want this? Obviously, it's for me. From mom and dad. Santa didn't come through, but mom and daddy did. Fat man didn't get the credit for this one. Billy Dean and Troy Ann, they sure did. Now, I got in trouble for taking it out of the box and putting it together and playing with it and putting the stickers on wrong and all janky and didn't go in the right places. The decals were crooked, but, you know, it's totally worth it. Totally worth it. And me and the killer whale went on to have some, some pretty awesome adventures. Have you ever hoped for something like that? Have you ever longed for something? And it was an ache so deep in your bones that you just couldn't put words to it. Have you, have you ever hoped for something to the point that it, it made you sick? And I, I know I've been talking, and I'm shifting gears here. I've been talking about a kid's toy from the 80s. But maybe you can identify with 11-year-old Coop. Maybe you've wanted something so bad, but you just know that it's probably not going to happen. Maybe what you hoped for is a relationship with the father or the mother who abandoned you. Or maybe what you've hoped for is a reconciliation with that child that walked away from the family. Or maybe you're hoping that God would send you a spouse who really values you as a person and values the things of God. Maybe what you've hoped for is, is just a friend, just a friend, a friend that you can spend time with, someone that really gets you, and somebody to, to be there with you when you're lonely. Or maybe what you're longing for is a career that would actually pay your bills and allow you to express that inner creative drive that you have. Maybe what you've been longing for is a ministry that would align the things that God has gifted you with and also allow you to feel effective and useful in the body of Christ. Maybe you've been hoping for a long time that you would finally have healing in your body from that chronic condition or maybe that hope is for a family member that you've watched suffer or maybe what you've been hoping for is to finally one day have relief in your mind from the debilitating effects of depression that have seemed to rule over you for so long maybe what you really hope for is finally to be free from anger and bitterness that you feel due to years of abuse and neglect have you ever hoped for something that seems so far out of reach 
because you know you and how you always tend to mess things up and sometimes it seems like you're your own worst enemy and you get in your own way of what you know is best. And you know life and how life can just be that way sometimes and how waiting and disappointment and bad turns can just suck the joy right out of you. Have you ever felt that while you're hoping that while what you're hoping for would be amazing and it would be awesome, it really is probably time to go ahead and tell yourself, look, come on, man, let's get real. It probably isn't going to happen at this point. It's too late. I'm too far gone. I've made too many mistakes, too many missed opportunities. It was a nice dream. It was a nice dream, but it's probably time to move on. And even though somehow you still hope, it hurts when you do. So you'd rather just not hope at all. Y'all quiet this morning, Grace Church. You got me feeling like I'm up here all by myself. Can I just get at least one amen from somebody that says, Coop, I know what you're talking about. You know, there's at least one person in Scripture who's been there. And I'd like to tell you a little bit of her story today. It's found in 2 Kings 4. We read a bit of it earlier. We don't know her name. We don't even know her name. The Bible calls her the woman from Shunem. Let me set a little context for you here. It, it really was a bad time in Israel whenever this story took place. The once united nation of Israel had split into two divided kingdoms, Israel and Judah, and it had been well over a century at the point of our story that that division had happened. The king of Israel at the time was a man named Joram. And Joram was the son of the previous king Ahab. And like his father before him, the Bible says that Joram did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And for the most part, the people of Israel were pretty apathetic whenever it came to the things of God. Idolatry was rampant. Materialism were rampant. True worship of God was a, a rare thing. For most, if they did worship Jehovah, he was just another of many gods that they worshiped. The country was tormented by war and constant turmoil. Elijah one of the true prophets of God that was left in the land had mysteriously disappeared. Nobody had seen him for months. It was a time of famine, financial hardship for a lot of people. The nation was in decline. But in spite of all of the trouble and in spite of all of the societal upheaval and in spite of the godless attitude of the majority in Israel, apparently there were still a few people living in the nation who held to their faith in God, and there were still a few who recognized and valued the things of God and the Word of God. And one of these, the Bible says, was this woman who lived in the town of Shunem. Now, the King James calls her a great woman, and most scholars say that that term indicates that she was a woman of wealth, a high social position, a community leader. But I think it's interesting that in the Chaldean Arabic, it translates it as great woman was a woman fearing sin or a woman of piety before God. Now, you do what you like with the language lesson this morning. It's just obvious to me that she had a heart for and a sensitivity to the things of God. And the Bible says that the prophet Elisha would come through Shunem. And that she perceived that Elisha wasn't one of these false prophets, but he was what the Bible calls a holy man of God. And so she made him feel welcome anytime he was passing through Shunem. She would cook him a meal. And apparently Elisha was there so often that one day she finally said to her husband, let's add on a little room to the house for the prophet. Let's, let's build a little evangelist quarters for the preacher. Now she didn't ask him. It's an indication of her status. In a patriarchal society, she told him, this is what we're going to do. It doesn't have to be anything fancy, just a little room on the side of the house, a bed, a chair, a table, a lamp. Just some place where the man of God can stay whenever he comes through town. 
Now, there is absolutely no indication in Scripture given of an ulterior motive. She wasn't after something. She didn't have an angle. She, she wasn't doing a good deed in search of some type of quid pro quo type of arrangement. She just simply sensed a need, saw a need, and, and made it happen. And the Bible says that one day Elijah's lying there on, on his little bed in his little room, and it dawns on him just how nice it is to not be sleeping in a cave somewhere, have this little room, how much he appreciates having this place to stay. So Elisha has his servant Gehazi call the woman to him, and, and he asks her, he says, Lady, what, what can I do for you? Can I, can I put in a good word for you with the king? I've got some powerful friends. Maybe I can talk to the captain of the host for you. Can I speak to someone on your behalf? And she answers him very honestly. She, she says, I have a home here among my people. What she's telling him there is, look, I'm secure and content with what I have, preacher. I don't need anything from you. I didn't do this to try to get something out of you. But Elisha won't let it go. He, he wants to bless this woman who's gone out of her way to make room for him. So Elisha, she leaves. Elisha says to his servant Gehazi, he says, Gehazi, what, what can we do for this woman, Chief? Gehazi looks around. He says, well, she has no son, and her husband is old. Duh, Mr. Prophet. Here she is, this great woman, wealthy and respected, but they don't have a son, no heir. You know, that was a reproach to her in this culture. At best, it, it was viewed as a disability, the fact that she wasn't able to have children. For most, a barren womb was, would have viewed that as a mark against her character, a point of shame. Because some Hebrews, a lot of Hebrews at this time, would have believed that her barrenness was her own fault. That some sin or failure on her part had resulted in God punishing her with a body incapable of having children. Elijah knows all that. So he says, you know what, Gehazi, you're absolutely right. That's it. Bring her in. So he, they call the lady back in and he tells her, he says, in, in this season, in nine months from now, you're going to hold a baby boy in your arms. And when the prophet told her that she would have a son, her response is really not what you would expect. 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 16, in the King James, No, my Lord, she objected. She's taking issue with this. She's not agreeable. She's got a problem with what Elijah is telling her right now. Please, man of God, don't mislead your servant. Now, look, this is not a language quirk or some type of translation fluke. This is strong language. She's telling the prophet that she had made room for in her house. She's telling the prophet that she realized was a man of God. She's telling that holy man of God that was trying to do something for her to bless her. She's, she's telling him, don't you lie to me. Don't you mislead me. You're a man of God. Don't you mislead me like that. Don't you tell me something like that. She hadn't asked for this. She's not like those other barren wombs that we read about in the Old Testament, like Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel or Hannah or even Samson's mother. This Shunammite woman had not been praying and asking God for a son, at least not recorded in Scripture the way those other women had. That tells me something. That tells me that this issue of barrenness was already a settled issue for her. She knew it wasn't going to happen. And she had made up her mind to just move on. But the strength and the vehemence of her response tells the true story of what was buried deep in her heart. Because that prophet, whenever he told her you're going to have a son, had touched on a hope that was still there, but it was just covered up by years of hurt and disappointment. I want y'all to get this this morning. She's not saying, don't you lie to me, because she doesn't want a son. That hope to have a son was definitely still on life support down deep in her heart. No, no, no. What she was saying whenever she said, don't mislead me, is that I've given up on the possibility that this could ever come to pass. 
She wouldn't have imagined that it was possible at this point. And what she had done by building on this little room to her house for the prophet, that that was so minimal, so small compared to such a blessing like having a son. She hadn't done anything to earn something like this. This promise from the prophet was coming out of left field for her. And I'm not, I'm, this is just me, my opinion, not in Scripture. But I'm not too sure that she really appreciated the intrusion into what she had accepted as reality. This is already settled for me, preacher, and now you're digging it back up again. Don't you play games with me. Don't you offer me something that's so amazing and so wonderful that I didn't even ask you for in the first place, for something that I'd already settled and moved past. Don't you promise me something that's just too good to be true. Isn't it amazing how God knows exactly what will fulfill us? Exactly the thing that we won't even ask him for anymore because it's so far outside of our concept of what's possible or allowable based on who we are and what life has turned out to be. Isn't it amazing what he's willing to do for us that we have done nothing to deserve or earn. Elisha says, no, lady, it's true. I know you don't believe me, but it's true. You're going to have a son. And she did. Nine months later, in season, she had a son. She had an heir. She had an heir to her estate, someone to pass it all along to, not just her material possessions but her heart for the things of God as well, her values of the kingdom. God gave her a legacy. He gave her a hope for her future. Much later in life, later than it really seemed plausible, probably much later than she would have preferred, God gave her a new purpose for living. She didn't ask for it. And her husband was old, the time had passed, but somehow God still gave it to her. After all of those years of hoping and hurting and disappointment, God gave her a son. And then he died. Read the story. Her dream died. Her hope died. Her future died. Right there in her lap. She wasn't negligent. She held him close. And he died right there in her lap. It wasn't her fault. She didn't do anything wrong. She's just going about the daily business of life, working and taking care of what needed to be done, and he died. Even though she told the preacher, don't you mess with me. Don't you play with my emotions. Don't you promise me something that's too good to be true. Don't you promise me something that's so perfect and so fulfilling and then not deliver. Is this how God works? Is this how he works? To finally give me what I've been hoping for and then take it away. The story goes that she took her dead son, leaves him on the bed in the room that she built for the prophet. And goes off to find Elisha. There's so much rich meaning in this story. Don't have time to get into all of it. When she finally finds Elisha, she falls to the ground and she grabs him by the feet. And she tells him, did I ask you for this? I told you not to mess with me. I told you don't mislead me. We read it from the NIV earlier. Did I ask for you a son? ask you for a son? Didn't I say? Didn't I say? Don't raise my hopes. Preacher, you knew what this meant to me. You knew how much this meant to me. 
I was resigned to reality. I was content to live without it. I'd made my peace with it because the hope hurt too much, and I was finally resigned to just let it go. But you brought it back to the surface. You gave that hope life. And now he's dead on the bed in the room that I built for you. And I don't know what else to do except come back and fall at the feet of the source of the one who gave my hope life to begin with. It's all I've got left, Elijah. So come back to you. Now her story has a happy ending. Elisha goes back with her. He goes into the room with the dead boy. He does some Old Testament prophet stuff. It's a little weird. But God raises him back to life. And that's awesome, man. I've preached that message before. That's a fun message to preach. It's a lot more fun than this one. That's a fun message to preach. It's an amazing story. It's so full of meaning. That's just not where I want to focus today because I felt... The hand of God on my heart all this week. I know I'm talking to at least one person. When it comes to the deep disappointments of life and the places in our hearts where it hurts too much to hope, you know, there's, I, there's just not a lot of comfort to be found in church cliches and empty platitudes. You know, th th those churchy things that people say, but really they just get on your nerves more than anything else. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Brother, just keep on keeping on, brother. Well, keep on. I'm going to keep on punching my fist into your face because that's dumb. If you know how much I'm hurting right now, when you're at the end of your rope, just tie a knot and hang on. What rope are you talking about? Brother, whenever you're at your end, you've reached God's beginning. And look, man, those, those people mean well. I, I know, I know they're, they're not trying to hurt they, their intent is to encourage and edify. And to be honest, I've probably said some of those things myself. But when you've been hoping so hard for so long that it's like a sore spot in your heart that you don't want to touch it, it's like an infected splinter in the end of your finger and you wince every time something gets close to it. You hear words like that and it's a Band-Aid at best and it's just an afterthought and annoying at worst. They don't really do anything. And so for that reason, I am very self-conscious in this moment. I'm very self-conscious in this moment. Because I'm really concerned that, that for those of you who have been hoping and hurting and you've been listening to me talk and you're like, Coop, I know exactly what you mean. That's where I've been. I really don't want you to talk about it anymore because you're getting too close to home. I'm worried that your pain is going to only allow you to hear words. But I'm not offering words today. I didn't come here to just, to just offer you words. I'm offering you a place to take your hope and your hurt, and I'm asking you one more time to take it to a person, the person, the source of any hope that we have in our lives. Now look, I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I don't know if Jesus is going to do like the prophet Elisha did for that Shunammite woman. I don't know if Jesus is going to bring your hope back to life. He might. He certainly can. But to say 
to look you in the eyes today, Grace Church, and to say unequivocally, yes, he is going to do that for you. He is going to bring that hope to life. He's going to make that thing happen in your life, that thing that's been hurting you, that you've been hoping for so long. It's going to happen. To look you in the eye and tell you that with certainty. It's, that's, that's turning a blind eye to all of the hopes that have gone unanswered. I've got to deal with this honestly. I've got to be authentic in this moment. Cancer has taken some wonderful men and incredible women and sweet little children to the grave and into eternity. And it wasn't because somebody didn't pray. Anger has left some relationships still in turmoil today. Ministries have gone unfulfilled in spite of prayer and hard work. Marriages have been left broken. And it wasn't because somebody wasn't praying. Y'all hang with me. Y'all hang with me. I'm not painted in a corner and neither is God. Here's the deal. Sometimes Peter gets led out of prison in the middle of the night by an angel. But one day Peter was crucified upside down. Sometimes Paul gets set free, singing praises in the middle of the night by an earthquake. But sometimes Paul says, I've been stoned, I've been beaten, I've gone hungry, I've been whipped, I've been shipwrecked, and I've been stranded. Sometimes John the Baptist sees the Spirit of God descending from the heavens like a dove and resting on the Messiah in the middle of the Jordan River, but sometimes he gets left in prison and beheaded. Sometimes, sometimes prayers get answered, and sometimes God comes through exactly the way we want Him to, and sometimes hopes are fulfilled, and sometimes dead hopes get brought back to life, but sometimes... Hope just seems to remain out of reach in this life. And I do not pretend to understand why. Don't get it. Why this person's prayer, not that one. Why this person's child, and not that one. Why her dream, but not mine. can't bring that out. This pastor says, I can't, can't wrap my head around that. But I have decided, in spite of the fact that I don't always understand, I am going to stake my trust my hope, my dreams, and my life on the God who is revealed in Holy Scripture. And that God that's talked about in this Bible is faithful and true. In Him there is no darkness and no variableness nor shadow of turning. He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. He is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart and He has promised to never leave me nor forsake me and to be with me until the end of an age. The hope in my heart may hurt for another week, another year, another decade. But please hear me. My hope cannot be in the thing that I long for or in my unfulfilled dreams. And I can't hide in bitterness either and call it being realistic and quit by degrees. You know what? Nobody... I have never heard a single person say, Coop, you know what? My life got so much better, and I became such a better person ever since I gave up on hope and just got bitter. We must. It is imperative. We gotta. Come on, somebody. We gotta hold on to hope, even when hope hurts. 
And that hope that we hold on to can't be in a thing, a relationship, a career, a ministry, or anything else. That hope must be founded in Jesus. He promised to save you. That's the promise we have. Eternal life. We've got to hold on to hope. You know, the scripture says, we read it earlier. Therefore, being justified by faith. Justified by faith, not by how I feel. Justified by faith. We have peace with God. Well, that'd be nice. I'd really like to have some peace. Through Jesus Christ, by whom we also have access by faith into this grace. Where we stand? I'd like some grace that allows me to stand. I want that. And rejoice. Rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Really not even sure what that phrase means, but I like the hope and the rejoicing part. Glory sounds pretty good. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also. I'm not too sure about that one, Paul. Still kind of hung up on that. Don't rejoice in too many tribulations. But he says, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, oh, okay, maybe I'm there. And patience, experience, and experience, hope, okay, I'm on board. And then he says, and hope maketh not ashamed. It's not going to leave you lacking. That hope is not going to leave you feeling like you got the short end of the stick or a raw deal. In the end, you're not going to look back and say, man, I really wasted all of that all of that mental energy and all of those emotions, it's not going to, all of, on hope. You're not going to look back and say, man, that was just empty promises. It's not, mm-mm. Paul's saying it's not going to, it's not going to leave you ashamed at the end. Because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost. You're not going to feel like you got a bad deal. Whatever you are hoping for in this life, whatever you are hoping for in your heart, and you've been hoping so long that it, that it hurts you now, whatever you're hoping for, whenever you finally stand before Jesus and He says, well done, you're not going to be ashamed of what went undone in this life. Whenever He looks at you and says, you got it right, good and faithful servant, you're not going to feel let down by what didn't happen for you or your family here on this earth. It is a hope that maketh not ashamed. I don't know how hard I can preach this. I don't know how else to say it to get through to you. At the close of this service today, Here's what I wish. I wish you would just talk to Jesus about your hope and your hurts. You don't think Jesus knows what it's like to live with a hope that goes unfulfilled? I can assure you, he knows exactly what it's like to carry an unfulfilled hope that hurts. Didn't he go to a sinner's cross hoping that all would come to him? He's not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. But we know that not everyone does. Jesus knows what unfulfilled hope feels like. He identifies with exactly what you're feeling. So I'm asking you today to take the opportunity to talk to a Savior who understands the hurt that your hope carries. I'm asking you to take the opportunity to get close to the source of hope today. Y'all stand with me. Let him hear about it. Like Job did. Like Jeremiah did. Pour out your heart. Pour out your hope. Pour out your hurt to the one who gets it.
Look, there are people that you've been talking to. You're, you've tried to tell them what's going on inside of you, but they, they just don't get it. They're not built like you. They haven't had the experiences you've had. And so they can make some sympathetic noises, but, but they don't get it. But the one who put that hope inside of you, he does. And he put it there for a reason. He understands. He gets it. And I want you to take an opportunity to talk to him about it today. You know, sometimes that's what faith looks like in its purest form. Coming back to the source and pouring your heart out in the middle of your hurt. Because sometimes your faith gets you what you want and your prayers get answered. But sometimes your faith just gets you through. But whatever the case, whatever the case, whichever way it goes, who God is, His good nature, His love for you, those things remain unchanged, steadfast and constant. What if Job hadn't been restored? What if he lost all of that? Dealt with his crazy friends who sat in judgment, poured his heart out to God, and in the end of the story, he just dies. We don't like that. But let me ask you a question. Would that change who God is? Would it change the infallibility of his word? Y'all get ready. I'm almost done. You know, there, there's, a, there's a thing that, that preachers do. It's called the biblical principle of first mention. You want to study a word and find out what a, what a word means in Scripture and dig into word meaning, you always go back to the first time it appeared in Scripture. The first time the word hope appears in the Old Testament, it's in the book of Ruth, chapter 1, verse 12. Naomi, a Jew, had moved to the land of her daughters-in-law and sons. The two sons died. The two daughters-in-law remained, Ruth and Orpah. And she told them, that's it. I'm going back home. Going back where I came from. Y'all just stay here. Find yourselves another husband. Live a good life. This is over for me. I'm done. And she told them, I am too old to have another husband because even if there was still hope for me, and even if I had a husband tonight and gave birth to two sons, it's not like y'all are going to sit around and wait on them to grow old enough to marry. The word that Naomi uses there is a Hebrew word, tikvah. And it literally means a cord, an attachment, a rope, like you would use to bind something or attach something together. In this moment, I'm just going to ask you, what are you tied to? What are you bound to? What are you attached to? Could it be that you've been attached to the hope and maybe even the pain of that unfulfilled hope, but there's a Savior who's standing waiting. Look, come talk to me about it. Let's have a conversation. Why don't you pour that pain out to me? Why don't you, why don't you give that hope and that hurt to me today? Let, let's, let's come together. Let's fellowship for a little while and talk. I want to hear what's really in your heart. I know you've been hurting for a while and, and there's some frustration and some discouragement going on, but, but I'm here today I want to hear what you have to say. I've still got a plan. I'm still working in your life. I've, I've, I'm still working behind the scenes for, for my purpose. But I still want to hear my child, the one that I love, tell me about their hope. Tell me about their pain.
when hope hurts, Jesus is listening. As they begin to sing today, I'm just going to open the front. Y'all know we do this every Sunday just about. There's no stigma today. Coming down to the front, kneeling at this altar, there's no stigma. It doesn't mean you've done anything wrong. It doesn't mean you've been negligent. It's not a mark against your character. It's just an admission that, God, I'm hurting, and I'm hoping at the same time, and there's things that I want you to do in my life, and I'm going to take this opportunity today while I'm close to the source to tell you about it. I don't know what you're going to do, and ultimately that's not up to me. And the way that you move in my life is not going to be the call that I make. I just want, just want to be in your presence. Just want to be in your presence and tell you how I feel. Come on, would everybody come? There's people here already. They need prayer. They need somebody to come up behind them and lay a hand on a shoulder and offer some encouragement. There's brothers and sisters here at the front that, that need to hear your prayers for them. Would you come today, Grace Church? Would you pray for somebody? Would you talk to him and let him hear what's going on in your heart?